chapter 2, verse 15 to begin. You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles, yet we know uh, that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Jesus Christ so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I have already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this time to be able to come together and hear your word from the scriptures, Lord, and I ask that you would bless this time we have. Uh, Lord, let your words be uh, ministry unto our hearts and minds, and let us take it with us this week, apply it to our lives, and uh, let it seep through every aspect of our life, Lord. Lord, I pray for all of those in this room, uh, all those listening online, all those at home as well, that you would uh, be with them this day, bring peace to their hearts, Lord. Um, anyone who is dealing with any troubling issue, I ask that you would be a great part of it, that you would uh, heal, that you would provide, that you would protect. And Lord, we thank you for all the blessings that you've bestowed on us. Uh, bless us as we move forward today, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Of the McCoy residence, there we are. Thank you. Many years ago, as I sat at the table of the McCoy residence, I learned a very valuable phrase. And the phrase is, there's proof in the pudding. That came about one day as a new hired individual throwing hay bales. You can tell I still have the physique. I was taught at home that whatever was set before me, you eat. And if you don't like what you have in front of you, there's always peanut butter and jelly. So I'm sitting at this table. Uh, Mr. McCoy, at that time, he wasn't yet dad, he was Mr. McCoy. My wife, Nancy, sat never near me. In early years of knowing her, we hated each other. But like any cat and any dog, they can get along together as life goes on. But that day, <laughs> yeah, I've been in enough holes, buddy, amen. But that day, after supper, Nancy's, uh, my wife's sister, took it upon herself to make 
uh, cornstarch pudding. And you all know that during the time of baking and making things, there are certain ingredients and measurements of ingredients that need to be added and not to be added. Cornstarch pudding is no different than any other recipe. You only need so much cornstarch to make cornstarch pudding. But I was told later that in life that Mary Ann, who is Nancy's sister, as she was making this cornstarch pudding, she thought it wasn't thickening up enough that she wanted, and so she kept adding cornstarch. And boy, did it thicken up. <laughs> she made it and put it in the refrigerator, and then it was brought out after supper. Being taught to eat everything, a bowl of that was laid in front of me. The first spoonful told you something was wrong. It didn't come out of the bowl too easy. And I'm looking over at Mr. McCoy, and he hasn't even touched his yet. I don't know if I was the trial or the guinea pig. So I put that spoonful in my mouth. And if there's ever a time when you wish you didn't do something, that was it. It didn't taste good, but I was not about to go beyond my homeschooling, so I took a second bite. Mary Ann said, would you like to have a little bit of uh, uh, juice from the peaches on that? I said, sure would. Put that on there, and it didn't seem to make much difference. And finally, about the third spoonful that I got in my mouth, Mr. McCoy spoke up and said, Doug, you don't have to eat this. He said, because the proof is in the pudding. Our passage this morning in the book of Galatians, there's a lot of proof in the pudding. The whole preaching passage should be the entire chapter 1, verse 11, all the way through to the end of chapter 2. But I was not about to subject you to a long reading this morning. Lord knows I have a tough enough time keeping you awake as it is, and I didn't need to start off with half the congregation checking their eyelids for slits. But what is interesting in this whole passage is that the Apostle Paul is giving a, if you will, a defense of who he is and the message that he has. You, you could say there's proof in the pudding. I want to quickly go through the first three points and then sort of slow down a little bit on the 
fourth point because there's almost, in the fourth point, there's almost an invisible therefore in the passage. It's, it's not written for us there, but it's, it's one of those places where you therefore should be. And so, this morning, let me just quickly go through the first three. The first one is this, from verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 11, to the end of the chapter, chapter 1 is the proof of Paul's conversion. You, you'll have to put down Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 will take you to the historical place of where the, Saul is on his way. The Pharisee Saul is on his way to Damascus. He's on the road to Damascus. And it's there that we see the conversion of him. And so in this particular passage here that we have in Galatians, the Apostle Paul is highlighting three things in his conversion, the pre, the during, and then the post. His pre-conversion is the fact that he says that he was a, if you will, an individual who wanted to destroy the church. He, He was set upon the fact that being a Pharisee of the Pharisees, He wanted to stop that which he felt was contrary to the law. And so he was determined to destroy it. The event during his conversion, we know, is that the apostle Saul saw a great light. And you know that story. And it was during that time of when God, Jesus Christ, spoke to him and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's tough to kick against the judgment. Goads, it's called, but it's tough to kick against the judgment, isn't it? And then we know the story that as as Paul lays it out for us, he, he goes and spends time on the desert, getting instruction from the Lord Jesus Christ because he said the gospel that he received, he did not receive from man, he received it from the very mouth of Jesus Christ. I would have loved to have been in that school. Can I get an amen? Can you imagine spending three years in the desert and meeting Jesus every day? School would be in session. Uh, they didn't have the written word. But what Paul had, and Saul had at that time, was the living word. Speaking to him, encouraging him, giving him instruction, if you will, preparing him for what was to lay ahead. He was to become the disciple to the Gentiles. That's who he was to be. And then post that, after that, it tells us in the text that then he went to Jerusalem and met with some of the apostles. He called them the pillars, if you will, of the faith, of the church in Jerusalem. And then he even spent time with Peter. Fifteen days, in fact, he spent with Peter conversing back and forth 
And I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that conversation. And so first we have, in those few verses, it, now, you, now you see the result, because notice in verse 24 it says that they glorified God because of me. Churches began to hear of this one who was once a persecutor, now is becoming a preacher. They didn't fully understand all of it, but they did glorify God because of the change of his life. In chapter 2, down verse 1 down to verse 10, now we have the proof of Paul's commission. The proof of Paul's commission. It is there that is recorded for us in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, the Apostle Paul, along with Titus and Barnabas, arrive in Jerusalem to give a defense, to give, if you will, a report of their ministry. And they were first greeted by warnings of the Pharisees saying that still an individual needs to be circumcised in order to be a believer. And it was there that the Apostle Paul began to, if you will, defend his particular message that he's been giving throughout his missionary journey. And as he met with the leaders of the Jerusalem church, they too realized that the gospel also came to the Gentiles. And they said to Paul, we support you. We're glad at what you're doing. Only we, we ask you to do this. Remember the people in Jerusalem and their great needs during their great time of depression which it says the Apostle Paul did. And so we have the proof of his commission. This is the one that I wish I had a whole lot more time to go on because this one here is proof of Paul's confrontation. That we find in chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. The Apostle Paul's proof of his confrontation. If ever there would be an individual that I would not like to be in a confrontation with on spiritual things, it most likely would have been the Apostle Paul. Remember, he's taught by Jesus, not by man. I remember as a wrestling referee, Mike, I still got the figure, man. A wrestling referee, there are a few coaches that as I walked into the gymnasium, my prayer was this, please don't let me blow a call. Because I knew them. They had been coaching for a long time. They knew the rule book inside and out. And during one wrestling match that I was the referee of, it was between New Hartford High School and my alma mater, Mohawk Central School. Sure enough, I missed the call, and I look at the scorer's table, and there's the coach standing there. I go walking over to him. I said, Coach, I said, I'm sorry. I said, I blew the call. One thing I didn't say, I didn't say, I'll make it up to you. I didn't say that, because that would have been just as bad. You know what his words to me were? 
some of the best words I ever heard a coach say a referee. He said, that's why they make erasers on the end of pencils. We all make mistakes. Peter made a big mistake. It tells us in chapter 2 that Peter was okay by having supper, fellowship, if you will, with Gentiles who became believers. Now, now you've got to realize that this is not new for Peter because you remember the account in the book of Acts where Peter is taking a nap on top of Simon the, the tanner's house. And it's there that a, that a sheet, he sees it, a sheet is, is lowered from heaven, and in it are all of these different kinds of animals, animals that a good Jewish person would never have even considered eating, let alone touching. But a voice from heaven said to Peter, eat all of them. And it took three times for Pete to get straight. But when he woke from that, there was Cornelius's two soldiers waiting to take Peter back to Cornelius's home. The sheet that was lowered was not so much focusing on food as it was on people. There was different animals in that sheet, but what it was pointing to was this, dear people. And Peter got the answer because when a Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, he was in charge of over a hundred troops. When his men were there, Peter got the understanding that the gospel now was even going to the Gentiles. And Peter went to Cornelius' home and stayed there. And you can read the account for yourself in the book of Acts. It was the whole family of Cornelius trusted Christ as their Savior. And Peter had no problem having a meal with them at that time. But pretty soon, he was confronted by people from Jerusalem. And he began to separate himself. And what he did was so dangerous that it says in the text of Galatians that even Barnabas was messed up. And Barnabas was the one who took Paul under his wing and stayed with him on missionary journeys. And so when the Apostle Paul came, he confronted Peter to himself. That'd be like two bulls going at it. But one bull had about a thousand more pounds on the other one. And the Apostle Paul straightened Peter out. For he said to Peter, How dare you? How dare you try to subvert the gospel of Jesus Christ by introducing works? It's by grace alone, through faith. Peter got the message. Because we read some of Peter's writings later on in 1 and 2 Peter, and you realize that he understood what Paul was giving to him. All of that is set up for the last one. The last point that 
that I really want to focus in on this morning, and it's this. Paul, proof of Paul's commitment. Proof of Paul's commitment. The passage that Pastor Steve read for you all leads up to the invisible therefore. And it's this. Therefore, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Apostle Paul's commitment. Now as we view this verse, there are a number of things I want to draw your attention to. First of all, the the attention is we have a choice. Every individual who has come to faith in Jesus Christ by the grace of Christ has a choice to make. And the choice is this. Who are we going to live for? There's only two choices in this world. As far as a believer's life, there's only two choices. I can either live for myself, or I can live for Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul is sharing with us his choice, and the reasons for his choice. And I want to share them with you this morning. The Apostle Paul begins by sharing with us what his identity is. His identity is the fact that he has been crucified with Christ. Time won't allow us this morning, but you need to write Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 7 where there it talks about taking part, being baptized into the death of Jesus Christ and what it does. But what's interesting in this particular passage that we don't fully see unless you spend a little time in it is this. Is that to be crucified with Jesus Christ means you take on his full identity which isn't all fun and games in the world. I think the Apostle Paul ties this in with Philippians chapter 2 when he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And the second part of that was what we don't really like and also the fellowship of his sufferings. But the Apostle Paul is saying being crucified with Jesus Christ means that also I bear the marks of the crucified Savior. When you go back to the book of Acts, you realize that Paul's life was not a bed of roses. Shipwrecked, bit by a serpent, 
stoned and left for dead. And yet still, he rises to preach the gospel. He shakes the dust off of his feet of one town and goes to another. So when the Apostle Paul says, I've been crucified with Jesus Christ, he's sharing his identity. Each one of you that are old enough to drive, you, (coughs) excuse me, you have an identity called your driver's license. Don't you just love it when they sit you down and take that picture? It's like, snap. Is this picture okay? Well, it isn't going to get any better, dear, let me tell you that. But what you don't see is that little black strip that is on the back of your license. That little black strip holds all the information of who you are. So that when a police officer may very well pull you over, and he says, may I see your license and your registration, he takes that back to his patrol car, And then instantly he can know everything about you. That's your identity. In Jesus Christ, as a follower of Christ, as a Christian, whatever term you want to have, our identity is known fully about him. In fact, one author said it this way, our identity in Christ should be both visible and vocal. People should be able to see a difference. And people should be able to hear a difference. Why? Because that's our identity. We've been crucified in Christ. But the dynamic of this, the dichotomy is this. At one point, Paul's talking about dying, and at the same point, he's talking about living. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. It's almost like the giant sequoias that are in Northern California. You've probably seen pictures of them. What's amazing about these giant trees is not necessarily what you see standing. It's what's underground. What makes these trees so amazing is that their root system doesn't go deep. It spreads out. It spreads out to other sequoias, and their their roots intertwine, which gives them so much strength. That's why those trees can grow to be over 60, 70 feet tall. Big enough that someone got the idea, let's cut a tunnel through ones that we can drive through. You see, their identity is in and of themselves. They intertwine us, the interconnectedness 
to the other root system that gives them strength and nourishment. Our identity is in the fact that, yes, I have died to Christ, but I live through His power and His plan. That's what Paul is saying here. It's not about works. Righteousness, rightness with God, justification does not come by works. There's nothing I can do to earn my salvation because Jesus has paid it all, and all to him I owe. The Apostle Paul is not reminding these believer people at Galatia that it's not about works. It's about relationship in Jesus Christ. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The second part of this is the encouragement that we have in Christ. First, our identity in Christ, and then the encouragement that we have in Christ. It's this, that he loved me and gave himself for me. That encouragement is the fuel for our identity. It is because of what Christ has done for me. The Apostle Paul is saying, because of what Christ has done for me, this is what I plan for him. I will die to myself that I may live under Christ. When we are ill, we go to a doctor. And if the doctor senses in our situation that we need some kind of medication, they write a prescription for us, or send the prescription, if you will, to our pharmacy. And we go and pick it up. And we have a choice to make. The choice is, am I going to believe what the doctor says and take this medication, or I can bypass it? I tried that a number of years ago, and it doesn't work. I ended up in the hospital with three mini-strokes that I didn't know I had, because I didn't take my blood pressure medication. When the doctor gives us a prescription, you can look up its, what it's all about on the internet. And the doctor doesn't want us to talk about it. The doctor doesn't want us really to investigate it. They want us to take it because they know that that's what we need. Too many believer people like to talk about the Word. They like to sometimes investigate it. Sometimes they like to tell you what you need to do with it. But when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus Christ, to that place of where we can say, I'm crucified with Christ, Jesus isn't asking our opinion about the Word 
He wants us to do the Word. To have it conform us to His image, and not we conform this to our image. I love that saying when it says, and you've seen it, I'm sure, on the Internet, where it says, the Word of God hasn't written to be changed. It's been written to change us. And that's what Paul's saying here. The reason I make this decision, Paul is saying, is because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. First of all, He loved me. You you can't go too long in the Scriptures before you realize how much God really does love you. How much He loves me. His whole intent is that He loves the whole world that He willingly gave His only begotten Son. And it's not this kind of hellfire, hellish love. It is the type that only God can do. The agape love. Loves us even before we loved Him. Paul writes for us in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrated His own love toward us. And that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's the second thing that Paul says. Not only does he love me, but he gave himself for me. I've heard it rightly said, and I I believe I have to agree with it. And some individuals have said, if I was the only one on the earth, Jesus still would have died upon the cross. That's how much he loves you. He willingly gave himself. He willingly sacrificed himself for us. And it goes on in verse 21 where it says, Therefore, I do not set aside the grace of God. I do not forsake the grace of God. I will not forsake the grace of God. Because if salvation, justification is by works, then Jesus wasted his time. And I'm glad he didn't. I'm glad he died for us. So the question is, dear people, is the proof in the pudding? Have you made the choice to determine to be crucified with Jesus Christ? Willingly proclaiming Him as King of your life? Or are you still basing choices that please you? I trust that the choice to be a follower of Christ, to determine in our lives that whatever we say and whatever we do would be for His honor and for His glory. And therefore, the invisible therefore, I've been crucified with Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul 
can defend his conversion, can stand for his commission, and even stand before Peter in contention because he has determined to be committed to Jesus Christ. That's, dear people, the secret of the book of Galatians. Let's pray together. Father, we again fall before your grace and say thank you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for giving to us life anew. And how I pray, O oh God, this morning that all of us here today, doesn't matter how old we are, doesn't matter how young we are, we can make that commitment that the Apostle Paul says when he said, I will not forsake the grace of God. May we live May we be visible and both vocal of our relationship with you. Because, Lord, the world out there is dark and they need to see it and need to hear it. For the same love that we have been given to us, we can do the same to share with others. So may you receive the honor and the glory through our lives. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.